You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the Double-Edged Devil Bill. This week we ask, whatever happened to Vanilla Sky? Adam Thomas and Thomas Ariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Ariani out here on the beach with two ice cream cones looking for my co-host, my sweet, sweet co-host. Where could he be? Uh, I'm Adam Thomas, and I have Betty Davis eyes. Oh, of course. Um, of course you Yeah, do. well, you know, fuck. Hey, it's a classic song. You can't oh, go oh, wrong with hark, it. Hark, hark, there's another voice here. And not just any voice. A voice we haven't heard on this show, Adam, in over 80 episodes. Can you believe it? It's been that long. I can't believe it. I, I, our, our listenership has dropped significantly. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, since then it's never recovered, of course. Yep. Uh, what, since we last had on the lovely Caitlin Turner. Caitlin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I'm glad I'm not feuding with you right now, Thomas. Oh, there would be rats all over your meals and everything. It would be such a bitter rivalry. <laughs> you mean all this time we could have been friends, Caitlin? Give it an hour. He's going to say something pretentious. And really upset. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I call Susan Sarandon in the eventual miniseries made by Ryan Murphy. <laughs> well, uh, welcome to the latest episode of Devil Edge Devil Bill, uh, where every week we cover a good and a bad feature that's picked at the end of our previous episode. And uh, this week, we ended up uh, with a topic we've been kind of dancing around for a bit, Adam, which is uh, thrillers, specifically psychological thrillers, as picked by our lovely patrons over at patreon.com slash gedbpod. Shout out to all of you, of course, who ended up picking this of the two subgenres for thriller. And um, we've done plenty of horror films on the show, Adam, especially as topics, but we always kind of steered away from thriller because we were kind of unsure of the line. Well, I always thought it was just a Michael Jackson song. That was my thing. So I was like, we're going to do an episode? I'm like, what the hell? An entire genre of cinema devoted to one music video? Hey, I kid, you know, I'm a jokester. That's what I'm here for. No, but I, uh, much like many genres but thriller can be broken down into so many different subgenres. there's psychological there's erotic there's political there's murder mystery i mean it's non-stop so you know i, I think it was a really smart idea letting the edgelords sort of steer the ship for us yes the edgelords are over at patreon.com slash pod those are the ones who voted and caitlin i know you're a fan of both genres and as you are with cinema in general um, where do you kind of draw that line between horror and thriller? What sort of makes it distinctive in your opinion? Here's the thing. A lot of times they're so interlocked together, they can't really be separated for the most part. But usually I'd say if for the most part you're screaming in your seat, then it's horror. Mm -hmm. But you can have horror thrillers as well. Uh, a good example of that one would be Get Out. You know, the ones that while you're watching it, make you go like, oh, fuck, or, or may disgust you a little bit or whatever. I call those 
more horror, but the ones that like kind of stick with you for a couple of days and fuck you up mentally, I call those more. Uh, yeah, if you if you really leave the theater thinking about it. Yeah, I, I that one that is a big sign of a thriller for me. Yeah, I agree. If you're not having necessarily like talking about the movie afterwards with your fucking stupid friends or whatever the hell you went and saw it with or by yourself in my case. <laughs> oh God. But no, if, if you're not talking to them and being like, wasn't that fun? But if you're like, Oh God, that guy was fucked up. That's a thriller. Yeah. I've heard people even say, Oh, thrillers are like non supernatural things when they try and attack you. So like, would you argue the first Halloween is technically um, a thriller as opposed to whatever, like a lot of slasher films, I would argue kind of, go into that territory and stuff like that it's a bit more dubious but that's why i do agree adam that we're i'm glad we sort of picked a specific subgenre for thriller and probably what we'll do in the future whenever we revisit thrillers as a topic because psychological thrillers all of them is more distinct as an idea where it's much more driven by like what's the person thinking and how is that sort of affecting their ability to function and eventually survive by the end of it it's it's pretty good to like sort of chop it up a bit yeah i agree with everything you said Funny, it's almost like I said it first. <laughs> oh no, another feud is starting. Oh no. Um, but... We must hurry before it ends bitterly. Of course, before it ends so bitterly, as it always does in every recording You session. were driving the car. You were driving the car, Thomas. <laughs> no, Adam, you. I wasn't put in the wheelchair by you. I did oh. myself. Oh. All this time. We just spoiled one of our movies, Vanilla Sky. <laughs> But but no, um, we are talking about uh, specifically our good pick is uh, one that was chosen by Adam, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. And then our bad pick is Vanilla Sky, which was one of my choices. And uh, we'll have an interesting discussion about both, I'm sure. And we'll go ahead and start off with Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Sister, sister, oh so fair. Why is there blood all over your hair? Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Betty Davis is Jane Hudson. Joan Crawford is Blanche Hudson. We must warn you. Try to remember that this is only a motion picture. Try and remember. So Whatever Happened to Baby Jane uh, came out October 31st, 1962. Ooh, spooky season. Just in time. And uh, is a film directed by Robert Aldrich and famously stars uh, Betty Davis as the titular Baby Jane, who was a former child star. Um, who in her later years, um, in her 50s to 60s, has become sort of an alcoholic, bitter woman that lives with Blanche Hudson, played by Joan Crawford, her sister, who um, in the course of the events we find early on was crippled in an accident and has been kind of at the mercy of her sister this whole time. And uh, this is a pretty famous movie, um, for particularly around the time these two actresses had been like nominated and won Academy Awards, and were pretty big back in like the 40s and 50s, but it kind of started to taper off here until this movie kind of revitalized their careers and also kind of started a mini subgenre known as hagsploitation, which involved uh, basically older actresses coming back into the limelight for a sort of grungy um, genre fair in which they were kind of like crazy, quote unquote, ladies of sorts. Um, and Adam, this was your pick, and uh, why'd you uh, decide to pick it? When I think of psychological thrillers, especially classic psychological thrillers, this is one of the first one that pops in the old uh, brain pan there. It's basically, for the most part, a two-person movie. I mean, there are side characters here and there, but for the most part, it's just Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. 
it's these two titans of acting that not only had to have sort of animosity towards each other on screen, but just the stories and legends that came out. And, you know, most of them are true about how much they actually despised each other in real life. It's kind of an interesting watch on that level, too, because it's so genuine just the pure contempt for each other. I mean, it, it's pretty, pretty amazing to watch uh, when you break it down like that. And plus, I mean, dude, fucking Betty Davis. God damn, is she great? I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Joan Crawford, but Betty Davis, fuck. Well, I mean, to be fair, you, you just surmised the entire problem that kind of happened when the movie came out. Everyone was like, oh, Betty Davis, Betty Davis, and Joan was not necessarily pleased, especially that she didn't get an Oscar nomination basically the problem their whole lives yeah. Betty was seen more as the actress and Joan was seen more as the movie star you know but and again though and I'm not taking anything you know away from Joan Crawford and I but I also think that what you just said Caitlin is true I think Joan Crawford was very much the the movie star the glitz and glamour star as she sort of portrays in this movie and Betty Davis is like a character the actress yeah yeah I mean she she hams it up in this movie to a level that it should be absurd, but it never comes across that way. It's kind of perfect as far as betraying someone who not only is holding on to their long-lost fame, but also just resentful, miserable, and a little crazy. Or a lot crazy, I guess you could say. Uh, I, I think that's fair. But um, we should also say, like, you're mentioning the feud thing. Um, we should obviously mention, we kind of referenced the Ryan Murphy series earlier that depicted sort of a lot of the big... Uh, controversial sort of rumors that were flying around this movie's production and the follow-up movie that Robert Aldrich uh, did with at least Betty Davis, uh, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, that um, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford kind of had some sort of animosity toward each other. There's been a bit of dispute over whether, let's say, hot take, Ryan Murphy might have made some stuff up for his show, which I know, shocking. Um, And even, like, the press in general might have, I think, inflated that a bit. I'd recommend there's a great channel called Be Kind Rewind on YouTube, that does a lot of great sort of retrospectives about actress like uh, Oscar runs and did a whole like two part video about this Oscar race in which if you don't know, um, Joan Crawford ended up accepting the award for Anne Bancroft who won for the Miracle Worker at this time. So Betty Davis was beaten and Joan Crawford went up to accept. And most would at least say that it was the big point of the feud, where they sort of had the animosity. But in terms of the production of Baby Jane, there's been some controversial stuff about like how much of the sort of feud is real or whatever. But we can continue to focus on the movie a bit more. As I asked Caitlin, uh, are you a fan mm. of this movie? I absolutely love this movie for so many reasons. Part of it being the feud, which also, besides the Be Kind Rewind video, I would also recommend... Uh, Bet and Joan, The Divine Feud, which really educates you on, like, how old Hollywood was back then and what drove the feud between the girls. Also, just the incredible acting in this movie. Uh, I've been an old-school Hollywood fan for quite a while. I used to watch um, old-school Hollywood movies with my Nana, and she got me hooked on Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, Rita Hayworth... And this is probably one of my favorite ones. Yeah, I remember I watched this first. Um, my dad introduced me to it. And he was just like, oh, these old ladies go at each other. It's great. Great sales pitch. <laughs> it was just really confusing to me as a child. And then I watched it. And it's a weird thing where <laughs> it's, 
but accurate. No, accurate, that's true. It, it, it is accurate, but it's a very weird sales pitch, especially to a child. <laughs> to a child, yes. And then I watched it, and it's a weird thing where it's not a movie that is obviously by 1962. It's not that, like, horribly gory or outrageous, but it is just, like, upsetting in a lot of ways. And I think at the time it was more of just like, oh, these old ladies are so, like, scary and they're going at each other. And what's so interesting is how as you get older, the movie sort of ages into being much more of a sad sort of portrait of these two. That's so fascinating to watch. And I think it's because you have these two actresses who, regardless of what actually happened with the feud that was going on, it kind of feels more indicative of just how Hollywood chews up actresses and after, like, 35 spits them out. He doesn't really give a yep. shit about them after a certain point. And I think he does such a brilliant job of, like, establishing just how much, like, even though, as we mentioned, uh, Jane Hudson does some horrible things in this movie, there's still a lot of sympathy you could have just in terms of, like, oh, like, the child actress stuff and then being so forgotten and being in the shadow of her sister after a certain point. You can see why she would have so much of this animosity and so much of this build up at the same time. She's... Yeah a villain on every level but it's a complex villain but she's also like you can tell she's got some mental health issues and it's like you can sympathize with her on that too yes because she's obviously not all there no right right and you know but the thing about that is yes she is a villain in the classic sense of the term absolutely but then joan crawford also is a villain in the oh, yeah. sense i mean she's she did you know, what she did is ultimately just horrible and repugnant. Uh, not only did she, you know, spoiler alert for a movie from the early 60s, but not only did she try to kill her sister, but then she made her think that the injury occurred because it didn't work was her fault and basically fucked her psychologically for yeah. 30 years. Right. You know, and I in mean, a way, that's, she that's fucked herself adult. psychologically and ended up causing sure. her own hell. Well, yeah, she ended up having to be dependent on a monster she created. Yep. Right. In all in all honesty, you could say she's the real villain of the movie. Well, she doesn't kill, she, <laughs> but she doesn't murder or kill animals. She tried so, to murder. Once, the, I'd argue, uh, Jane succeeded several this is times. True. <laughs> Look, they're, they're both kind of terrible. It's fine. We get it. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're awful people. They're right, awful right, awful right. People. But I, I do agree that I think that's the thing is when people give so much credit to Betty Davis, it's immediately the flashier performance. And I think it does, like, I get why it was nominated and all this other stuff. But Crawford is a real fulcrum for the movie because if she doesn't have this completely different kind of evil, it doesn't quite work. And I think few people could portray it as well as a Crawford because she has a sort of, like, gaslighting effect as well of, like, constantly, like, doing these passive-aggressive jabs about, like, oh, you know, it's fine, I'm just in this wheelchair, all this other stuff, like, really getting into her sister psychologically. And that results in these two actresses delivering very nuanced performances, but at the same time also delivering really fun, kind of campy moments, which a lot of people responded to at the time. And I think a lot of the imitators tried to duplicate more than, like, the nuance that's here. Which, admittingly, there's so much fun, like, particularly the bit where um, Joan Crawford's talking about, like, oh, my agent phoned us saying that we should probably sell the house. I've looked at the phone records. You called him! And then, like, points at her and shit. It's so good. Like, so many of the different things that Betty Davis does in particular that are just, like, so silly, but in a, like, in oh, way yeah. that works for the character. You can tell that they gave it their all simply because they didn't know if they would have another chance. They were already having a hard time finding roles and they thought this might be their last shot and make mm -hmm. it good. They gave everything. When I first saw this, I, this was like a 
perfect movie for me. It's still a really good movie. It has lost a little bit of its luster for me. I don't think I'm as big on it as I was, but that's saying like from a five to a four. It, it does feel a little bit long-winded in parts. Uh, I mean, this movie's two hours and 15 minutes, and I they could have easily cut 20 minutes out of it, I honestly think. It's a bit slow-paced, I would agree. Yeah, a lot of that has to do with, and forgive me, I forget his name, but Mr. Flagg, uh, King Tut from the Batman series. <laughs> Victor Buono is uh, the actor's name, yes. Yeah, his scenes with his mom or whatever, it, like, it, it's just so bad. <laughs> like, like the, <laughs> the, the fake Cockney accents, at least for the mom. Maybe his is, his is a little more subtle and stuff, and it does sound maybe a little more natural because it's not always there. Uh, it's just certain inflections on certain words. The only part of his character that worked for me is when he's playing the piano and she's singing. And he's like, oh, fuck, what have I gotten myself into? I'll disagree in general with Victor Buono being the problem because I think he's like third player that I think sticks out so well because he has so many great reactions to what's going on. Not just in like that scene, I agree, where he uh, she's dancing to the um, my, I wrote a ladder to daddy. But also just like so many other points where it's like, oh, I can't have a present for you. It's this doll. I'm looking at this doll. Like, the fuck is this thing? <laughs> like just every single facial reaction I think works off of him. I agree we didn't necessarily need all the stuff with his mom. But at the same time, I think he like has so much of like this weird kind of like audience surrogate angle to it where you have these two actresses that are going back and forth they've lived in this hollywood life for so long meanwhile he's just like uh-huh um i should probably go i don't know but i need money <laughs> how do you feel about his character caitlin i actually really enjoy his character i do agree that a little bit of the scenes with his mom are a little slow paced but i don't think it really detracts from the film you need someone who's more sane to help kind of ground the film every now and again otherwise you're not gonna really appreciate betty and jones performances as much you don't get a feel for how much their relationship is out there without a bit of a grounding force i'm not saying that having his character is was unnecessary i i don't think that's the case i do believe obviously you have to have uh just on the grand scheme of the story sort of the catalyst to unfold everything that's happening which he ultimately becomes uh like he's the one who notifies the police and things like that uh it's if i had to trim some fat from the movie ultimately a lot of his stuff would be trimmed it does feel like it plays a little too long because ultimately you do know where this movie is headed. Maybe not the twist, but you know eventually it's going to be found out, especially because of the era this movie was made. Now, if this would have been made nowadays, who knows, maybe you know Blanche would have died or they both would have died in the house and not been found or who knows. But just ultimately, I, I just feel like it, it just it's a little long in the tooth. And that could just be literally me displaying my age, too. I mean, I'm damn near 40 years old and now watching two hour plus movies. I'm like, OK, let's go because I got other shit going on. But I don't know. I, I, I still really like the movie. I, I think it's beautifully shot, beautifully acted, but it has dropped a little bit, in my opinion. For the most part, I think the pacing's fine. A lot of psychological thrillers in particular are slower films. So for me, I didn't really notice the problem as much. Are there some fatty bits you could have cut? Yeah, but to me, they still, each of them adds something to the film. Yeah, I think I would generally agree. I think especially some of the sequences where you have to really take the time to see just how, like, especially like a Betty Davis axe in the middle 
of what's going on. I think like the I've written, I've written a letter to Daddy, where you have to like really focus on all her brilliant body language and how much she's like into me. And like, oh, I'm only so happy when I can go back to this childlike innocent phase, but it's so much more upsetting when I'm like nearly pushing sixty. And I'm doing this. Or even, I think the scene that really stood out to me this time is the whole sequence when she's going over to Joan Crawford and Joan's, like, hanging in the bed. And it's, like, mostly dark except for, like, one light that's coming on. And she's talking about, like, the whole thing with the cop when they were younger. It's just like, oh, yes, the police officer came by and he told me to do something I wouldn't do to my sister. And he slapped me around. That has so much weird tragedy but also unsettling tension at the same time that needs to build over the course of a longer sequence. I agree. I, I think all the sort of deconstruction of her psyche scenes are, are incredibly important to this film. Um, again, I, I don't know what the problem is. Maybe the meandering sort of her going about her day-to-day sort of errands she's running. I don't know. There's again, there's something about it that's disconnected for me this time. Uh, but that's not to say that I still don't love the movie. I just, I don't understand where the disconnect is. And I was hoping, you know, since I'm on here with such learned people, especially you, Thomas, you're so goddamn smart that you could uh, help me with that. And clearly you have failed me and I have failed you. So I would just like to thank everyone for tuning in to double, double bill as long as they have uh, for that exchange next week. <laughs> oh, we failed each other much like the two Hudson sisters to, to so many degrees. No, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> you cannot get rid of this man no that's true I can't leave him on the beach he'll just crawl through the sand toward me as I get my ice cream cones I couldn't go on the beach period are you kidding me my big pale fucking white fat ass Oh, well, I wouldn't God, go on a beach terrible. right now anyway pandemic season no thank you for that petri dish true that's the thing Betty, <laughs> Betty Davis also what? would not be around like have this big crowd like crowd around her during this hopefully not yeah, depends where she is at maybe Florida you would probably have that but you don't want that Betty. oh you know it would happen even probably. during a I'm, pandemic true true I'm yes. already the shape I'd be the color of Patrick Starr within like 30 seconds <laughs> you'd have sort of the complexion of like a Betty Davis with her makeup, which we should credit, was her entire idea. The Perfect. fact that she came up with that is brilliant. Yeah. And that bit about the wig, that it was a wig Joan Crawford had used in one of her previous films. Right. And I think that does such a great job of really establishing the character that she has, like, all these particular techniques that feel so outdated, so, dip, like, so far off from, like, where the Hollywood system is at this point. That's I love it, too, just because I think this is one of the earliest movies to give me sort of that realization of like oh even this old movie is not old for the spectrum of like film because there's so much that happened before that it feels also kind of like a weird interesting point in history for hollywood where we're getting so much about like oh this is like the early 60s the studio system is starting to wane at this point and so we're getting like these exploitation movies i mentioned are sort of just like really the last sort of ditch efforts from the studios before like the a new age of Hollywood would come about with like your Scorsese's and all these other people kind of like taking the reins and being auteurs, which is also not to discredit Robert Aldrich, who was kind of like a journeyman director who also directed like a bunch of great movies, like the longest yard before this did kiss me deadly. Um, he's a very underrated director. I would say overall, and he does a phenomenal job, like building a lot of tension throughout a lot of these scenes, particularly any of the scenes where it's Joan Crawford trying to kind of map out how she can go down the stairs like, that whole sequence where she's, like, trying to go down the stairs without the use of her legs is such a great building of tension leading up to the great moment where Betty Davis walks in, sees that she's trying to use the phone, and then kicks her in the head, 
where it's like there's not it's not obviously graphic in 62 it's pretty hardcore like her head hits the fucking end table like she fucking nails her she yep. pales oh, yeah. her fucking temple but no uh, you know and one thing too that i do want to uh address is the very opening uh like with the father and her in the alley when she's like you know i make all the money and blah 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 that is still so realistic as far as like childhood actors and the parents who thrust them into childhood. Watch Toddlers and Tiaras or something like that. This is exactly that. Where, you know, and then the one who's not famous pipes up. He's like, what does this matter with you? Like it's that to me is one of the hardest scenes to watch in the fucking movie already. And it's in the first 10 minutes. We're like, oh, these kids are screwed. <laughs> like, like right. it's already and then the whole movie permeates how much she thought of her father you know with the the song she constantly sings but daddy bought this house for me and but i mean it's just it's it's kind of fucking twisted but i mean when you're a child star your relationship with your parents is very twisted because they've basically forced you into the role they're supposed to be assuming in you becoming the breadwinner yeah, they take on a business manager role instead of a parent. Not in all cases, but the, definitely. But the- it's more rare when it's not the case. Uh-huh. Right. It's, it's a bit different also, like the stage parent kind of relationships. You don't have them being as overprotective as you might have in modern days. But this one is a more like abusive kind of angle of it. Where it's, it's not even like as much physically as much as much more psychologically. Oh, yeah, dude. He comes out at the end of performance and he's bowing and shit. And it shows the mom like kind of like, oh, God. Like, you know, like he's out there taking the credit and shit and he's not doing anything. Oh, yeah. It's it's a lot like you can understand why the relationship became twisted. Yeah. And also, I think that opening scene does such a great job of establishing the kind of child star uh, young baby Jane was in terms of just yeah. like the, very much like, oh, I'm a cupie doll. I'm going out here and doing all this stuff. So it makes all the stuff where she warps that in her older age all the more upsetting and kind of terrifying. And I, oh, I yeah, also, she was I, basically a version of Shirley Temple in a lot of ways. Right, yeah, but she ended up working for the government after this point. She didn't have that career no. afterward. No, not at all. Um, but at, at the same time, like, I think that also really works for, like, Betty Davis's decisions as an actress were, like, how much she, like, goes for over-the-top theatrics works since she, like, was raised on the stage and being this performer. Yeah. Even in her life, she has to perform. She's vaudeville. Yes, Oh, everything's over the top. Everything's big. Everything's grandiose. And even with the makeup to where she's constantly got this show makeup on, basically. So the lights can read her. Painting for the cheap seat. And, and again, and you know, not discredit Joan Crawford because Joan Crawford is good in it. She really is. Just they are on such different wavelengths. That, that's because Betty's uh, performance was supposed to be more out there while Jones had to be more toned back. No, I, I yes, absolutely. I mean, that's obviously the point. If Joan Crawford was on the same wavelength as Betty Davis or vice versa, the movie would it, not work. Well oh, yeah, it would have been too much. You can't have that level of crazy. Things. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> crazy levels are over 9,000. <laughs> you can't have Blanche levels of character because then the film kind of gets too boring. I would argue it would slow it down even further if you kind of had both. I think that's the problem with, like, I watched Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which I'd never seen before. And that mm. one was sort of infamous because Joan Crawford bailed during early filming and they got Olivia de Havilland and um, she, one, feels like she's on sleeping pills for most of that movie. But two, it feels like it's definitely like that movie 
shows how much you can kind of like if you rely too much on a Betty Davis, it can be kind of fun, but also you have to have somebody that like equally matches and to have listen quite that. And there's also Agnes Moorhead who goes crazy over the top with like a Southern Belle Louisiana accent. Uh, that's a bit yep. much. How do you feel, Caitlin, in terms of like sort of this subgenre created? How it kind of like paled in comparison to a Baby Jane? What do you think this has that a lot of the imitators don't? the desperation because Robert Aldrich really needed this to be good. So he let Joan and Bette do what they do best. And a lot of directors refuse to let stars do that kind of stuff because they're afraid of losing control. And especially when you're trying to like exploit older women, they're going to know it. They're going to know they're being exploited they aren't going to give half the performance if you don't respect them. And I think that was something that was very different in this film. Yeah, I think it's it's the difference between, like, I think a lot of those movies have desperation, just but it's more about, like, trying to desperately imitate something else as opposed to yeah. desperation being the mother of invention. I, com- I completely agree. I mean, you got to figure, it's it's always hard to imitate an originator of something, and especially yeah. on, on the level that this one was. And it's still lauded. And it's still appreciated and still studied and still talked about. I mean, I know people who have never even seen this movie. If you say the title, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, they're like, I think I know about that movie. And they know what it is still yeah. to this day. It has lasting power. Like, I think the best example to compare the genres would be, like, say, compare Saw to some of the torture horror movies that came out afterwards where they were kind of just riding the money-making train. Right, I mean, that movie, much like this movie, had, like, a very small budget, and so they kind of, like, scrapped together what they could. Like, that's something important also, that this movie cost $980,000 and made $10 back in 62. Yep. Which is insane. Oh, yeah, It it was so popular. That's why they kept riding the train so hard, like... Uh, Joan even did another film, Straight Jacket, with William right. Castle. Not very good. I mean, her performance is good. But... A William Castle movie being subpar. That never, ever happens, Caitlin. <laughs> They're all great, <laughs> like House on Haunted Hill. That's all of them, right? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, but we should, I guess, kind of get into our final thoughts here. Caitlin, our guest, your final thoughts on whatever happened to Baby Jane. This is an extraordinary movie with two tour de force performances from legends of the screen. And honestly, I know some people don't like going back to watch old Hollywood movies. And I say, give it a shot. You will fall in love. Yeah, black and white movies can be fun, kids. Even this one that's really sad and depressing at the same time. It's kind of fun. Yeah. But Adam, your final thoughts on whatever happened to Baby Jane. Well, I mean, you know, it's a classic for a reason. It, it truly is. Whether or not I had disconnect this time or not, that's just one person's opinion. This movie is still copied, examined, studied, lauded after, like I said, uh, to this day. It features two of the greatest performances I've ever seen, if not single-handedly, one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in Betty Davis. Yeah, I'll be that guy. I'll get on the Betty Davis train. But it's deserved. She's so fucking phenomenal in this. It almost becomes real watching uh, someone who is a sociopath and going through psychosis. It, it, it's depressing. It's entertaining. It's thrilling. And there's been remakes. There's been case studies. There's been television shows. There's been everything about this. None of them even compare to this one. Still. Yep. Yeah, the influence is pretty profound. Like, even, uh, Caitlin, I guess you can speak to this a bit further, even amongst, like, uh, the queer community and, like, particularly drag queens. 
Like oh, to imitate Lord. like a Betty and Joan in particular. Do, do the drag queens ever love this movie? Yeah, which makes the a lot of sense. The drag queens yeah. adore. Um, I actually went to a drag show before the pandemic. There was a drag queen. Um, her name was uh, Stroke 'em Harder. Nice. <laughs> she was imitating Betty and another drag queen whose name I did not get the name of, and I feel unfortunate about that, uh, was doing Blanche. And it was a very good performance from both of them. And then at the end, uh, Strokem did, uh, I've written a letter to Daddy. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> of course. But I mean, yeah, I think it's also interesting coming from like what Adam was talking about in terms of how many things have imitated this movie. Like I came to this, like the first thing I ever saw that technically like introduced me to who Joan Crawford was, was Mommy Dearest. Uh, the Faye Dunaway movie, oh, um, which is a very interesting movie, to say the least, and how it kind of tries to create camp out of a horrible situation that may or may not have happened in terms of some of the child abuse stuff that's been disparaged, depending on who um, says it. Uh, but at the same time, like, you kind of get these imitators, like even a few, the Ryan Murphy show, which I recently saw and really dug, um, even though it's very obviously over the top and silly. Um, oh, even yeah. when you like kind of get these also rands, like when you go back to a movie like this, you see so much more of the pathos and the tragedy that's there, even down to like the whole climax on the beach has so mm -hmm. much like of these characters stripped down to their very core, kind of realizing like, oh, we could have been friends this whole time. And that line is sad for so many reasons and Layers oh, of sadness, it's heartbreaking. Right? That, that really um, just really hits where it's, it's more than just like, oh, it's a campy fun ride. It has that. But at the same time, there's yeah. a lot more nuance and tragedy and beauty that's going on here. It kind of has slow bits, but at the same time, I think it's so mesmerizing to watch that it doesn't really affect it that much for me. But speaking of long movies, we have another one to talk about here. First, though, here's an ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. Attention, people of Earth! Looking for a way to kill half an hour every week? Try the Flopcast! It's a silly podcast about cartoons, music, comics, movies, obscure pop culture from the 70s and 80s, and chickens. Join us! Bring coffee! We're on the ESO Network. And we're at Flopcast.net. Okay, and let's get into our second feature, our bad feature, depending on who you ask. Vanilla Sky. <laughs> got a situation here. What is this? I didn't do this. You've been charged with murder. There's no murder. I want Sophia back. These people are dangerous. They want to steal my life! There's an explanation for all this, David. So, Vanilla Sky came out December 14th, 2001, um, written and directed by Cameron Crowe, who at this point was coming off of doing both the extremely box office successful and Oscar-nominated, I think winning, yeah, winning, uh, Jerry Maguire, and then also, of course, uh, Tom Cruise is the star and producer, who is coming off at this point doing Magnolia and also, uh, like, the two Mission Impossible movies, particularly the second one right before this. And uh, is a remake of a movie called Open Your Eyes, a Spanish movie that was directed by Alejandro uh, Amendabar, who'd also directed around the same time, interestingly enough, Nicole Kidman, the fresh ex-wife of Tom Cruise in The Others, a movie I know we all love here. Before we go into Vanilla Sky, um, have we all seen the original and what do we think of that, Caitlin? Uh, I've seen the original. I actually 
never saw Vanilla Sky before this week, and I didn't even know it was a remake of Open Your Eyes. And are you a fan of the original movie? Oh, I'm a very much a fan of the original movie. The performances of um, Eduardo um, Norija. Uh, I, I'm right. horrible with names. No, we're all so awful here, too. It's fine. <laughs> uh, is incredible. Right. And obviously Penelope Cruz, who would play the same part in this movie. Is also oh, yeah, but honestly, I think Penelope Cruz was better in this one than Mel Skype. Okay, we'll get into that more. But you're a fan of the original movie. Oh, yeah. Plus, I'm just like the actors. uh, I've been fans of them for a while. And so I'd seen this one about, I'd say about 10 years ago now. And I fell in love with it. Okay. And Adam, are you a fan of Open Your Eyes as well? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I am. I'm biting my tongue. I'm going to let you guys say what you got to say so then I can uh, tear it down and champion this film. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I guess uh, briefly before we get into Vanilla Sky, um, I hadn't seen the original until this week. Um, I had seen Vanilla Sky, like, last year I went through Cameron Crowe's movies. I do really dig that original movie, but at the same time, I could see remaking it, even especially having sort of, like, a, an American touch might be interesting, especially Cameron Crowe's distinctive voice. Um, and I would say for me, I think Vanilla Sky, it's weird how it has a lot of the same elements of the original movie in terms of, like, you follow your main character, who's this guy that kind of is well-to-do, um, and has, like, a very productive sex life, but finds a sort of one-night true love of sorts in Penelope Cruz, and they both kind of have, like, a connection. Um, and then he uh, has a horrible accident with this other lover who he kind of has been ignoring this whole time that caused him to be severely scarred, and he kind of has a lot of um, issues that kind of build up for him, and things build up to a sci-fi sort of twist after a certain point. Uh, the So much of that is in Vanilla Sky, and I think the movie does an admirable job of kind of following that while trying to add its own voice, but I don't know if it quite comes together for me, as we'll explore further. Caitlin, having seen it for the first time this week, how do you feel about Vanilla Sky? I'm very sorry, Adam. I, I really disliked it. One of the major problems for me was Tom Cruise. Unlike Eduardo, uh, I just really could not empathize or even relate to David. And to me, that made the movie lose a big part of itself. Well, Adam, um, this was my choice, but I think a big reason why I picked it is because I know you are um, a pretty big fan of at least this movie. So uh, why don't you go ahead and at least uh, introduce your arguments to the court, to the jury, uh, about why uh, you might be a fan of this one. You know, well, first of all, I've been met with a lot of criticism. Uh, were championing this film for a long time, even to the point where when I applied to work at a video store and I was asked what my favorite movie was, and at the time it was this movie, and they were like, what? And I honestly think that's the reason I didn't get the job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, all right, I'm going to flat out just go right off the bat is that I don't know that I would be as diverse of a film fan as I am now without this movie. The first time I saw this movie, it sort of blew my mind. Uh, I had seen this before I saw the original, obviously. But the fact of the matter is that there's so many different genres in this one film. And I I do think they're all done pretty expertly well. The the visuals, the acting, the implementation of uh, the different subgenres, I think it's pretty much done expertly. I absolutely still am entranced by this film every time I see it. And I I do get what you're saying, Caitlin, about Tom Cruise in this movie. Yeah. Uh, But I think that was sort of the decision 
to make him that in this, where he's not as sympathetic of a character. He is more of the Tom Cruise playboyish dick. You know, he's kind of out of touch with reality and the things going around him, but his own ego. And the idea that the Penelope Cruz character for one second makes him be vulnerable, and that's what he latches onto because he, for one time, felt like, you know, a normal person, which I think makes the character all that more unlikable, but at the same time tragic to where he's never experienced anything that you can consider sort of a normal relationship, be it through his father, be it through the relationships he's had in business, be it through the women he's been with, anything. He's so detached from reality that he only way he finds reality is in this fabricated sort of universe that he has created for him. I, I honestly still to this day, I, I, I think this is damn near a pitch perfect film, be it the way it's shot, acted, uh, the score. Uh, the Radiohead soundtrack is fucking just fantastic. Cigaros. The score is really good. Oh, oh, Cigaros, come on. But no, and, you know, I, I'd say a never better Cameron Diaz. I think this is the best Cameron Diaz has ever been in anything is in this movie. Uh, I will agree she is great in this movie, but it's hard to beat Char- Charlie's Angels Cameron Diaz for me. She's fun in those movies. Uh, I don't think the problems I, are with I, her I or any of the other people. My, my thing with uh, the Tom Cruise element of it is I do agree that he is kind of this dick considering Tom Cruise's overall career, how it weirdly sort of is a fulcrum movie for everything. Because before this, you'd had like the Mission Impossible stuff, but also you had stuff like Jerry Maguire, where he plays like an asshole that kind of is redeemed by the end of it. And I think Crow is playing a lot on that. Like the first 40 minutes or so of this movie is very much kind of like almost like a cartoonish Mad Magazine parody of fucking uh, Jerry Maguire on a lot of levels. It just, um, to... Like, I think ways the movie's trying to kind of make it feel like, oh, it's sort of simulation-y that fits for the sci-fi twist that comes up later. Um, but also, I think this is the last time we kind of saw Tom Cruise portrayed as like, oh, I'm a fun-loving normal guy who just has, like, a lot of fun relationships with people and I'm just doing great. Because when this movie sort of turns into him becoming like, oh, I'm haunted and I'm terrified and everything, you see pretty much every movie after this Tom Cruise has made, he's been playing that. Like, Minority Report's right after this. The rest of the Mission Impossible movies have a lot of that going yeah. on. I think you definitely see sort of this feels like him kind of saying goodbye to his older image and embracing sort of the weird, insane person he kind of is, allegedly. Tom, if you're listening, we know you love it. You're awesome. <laughs> you might be onto something there, and I, I guess I can't disagree with that, but that might also be a reason why I find it so fascinating, too. Yeah, see the death of one persona and the, the blossoming of another that... You know, it's literally almost a half and half performance. And again, too, uh, you know, to get uh, Penelope Cruz in this movie, I mean, I instantly fell in love with her. I think she's fantastic in this film. You know, I'll see you in another life when we are both cats. I mean, how adorable. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen. Her with the big, giant, fluffy jacket. Uh, Jason Lee, I still hate him. I hate him in this movie, too, a lot. But, yo, Timothy Spall and Kurt Russell. Come on now. Come on. (laughs) I, mean, I, I think for me with like um, the supporting cast, I think Penelope Cruz, this was an early English role for her. And she's playing the same role she played, as I mentioned, Open Your Eyes. And I think you yeah. kind of feel that struggle from her. You can kind of tell she's kind of trying yeah. to master the language more than she's trying to like perform necessarily. Which I think it's not her fault necessarily. Oh yeah, no, it's not her fault. It's just I felt like she was able to give more of a emotional and physical performance in um, the original. I don't disagree with that either, but I think with her trying to sort of, you know, take on the English language and everything, I think it made the character a lot more quirky in this one than it did in the original. Mm. 
where I get why she'd be more alluring to someone like David, who's so straight laced, where she's just this quirky little artist. And, uh, you know, he's fascinated by her. So to me, it add, it, it didn't necessarily detract, but it, 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 it sort of made the character a little different, even though it's played by the same actress, there is definitely a difference in the character for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's definitely kind of going for something more overtly quirky. I think that's the thing is Cameron Crowe kind of has a style of writing that works for something like uh, Jerry Maguire and especially an Almost Famous. But I think in this movie it comes off a bit more of like he's overcompensating. I think to kind of make the eventual twist work as well as it is supposed to allegedly from him and i think that really comes off and like i agree that cameron Diaz i think is doing a a pretty great job as much as she can with a role that's so like incredibly um misguided i think just on a script level with stuff like the the whole um you swallowed my cum that means something it's like okay (laughs) that's a way to say it that's certainly a way to say it (laughs) It's, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I swallowed your cup, not you swallowed my cup. Well, that's true. That's You're a... right. Yes, right. Yeah, because I don't imagine David going Way down. No, yeah, he doesn't. He does not go down. No, confirmed. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, he definitely does not. No, he's he too much of a narcissist. No, confirmed. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you know, just just the visuals. You know, under these beautiful Monet-like skies, and uh, God, I can never remember his name. The actor who plays tech support. Noah Taylor. No, Taylor, he's so good in it, too. And he's perfect. It's this oh, sort yeah, of he does a really good job, too. Tilda Swin, get the fuck up. I mean, come on. Yeah, just popping up. There's a lot of people who pop up like, oh, shit, you're in this movie. Okay. But that is true. But I'd argue that in those cameos, everybody that has those cameos makes the most out of it. Uh, again, though, this, this I'm being biased because this movie does mean a lot to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, I gotcha. But, but I, I think the, the mask when he's got the corrective mask on the whole scene in the club and everything is so fucking like eerie and creepy and weird. You know, it's, it's just such an odd thing to me. And I, I love the switch and it's so obvious, but you never pick up on it. Yeah. Obviously you've seen the original, but when the switch happens, you're like, Holy shit. Like it, it just, to me again, you know, when they were, they're walking, you get all the iconic subliminal imagery, like just thrown at you constantly. I was I was a big comic book movie fan, action movie fan, and horror movie fan. I never really got into really heady movies or or really got into sort of I don't want to call it this, but think pieces until after I saw this movie and I'm like, oh, there's some weird shit out there. Maybe I should do that. And like I said, this completely changed opinion on what cinema could be. Um, now I'm not saying that it's for everyone because it definitely isn't. Like I said, I, I have no many detractors, but for me, this was the movie. Everybody's got that one movie that they remember seeing where, like, opened your eyes, you know, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> but opened your eyes to the idea of what can be done in, in cinema as a whole. And this was that one for me. Well, I'm glad it was. Right. I think what works about this, especially sort of like a remake, because this was around the time we were getting a lot of like big budget American Hollywood remakes of these various movies from foreign nations, like at the turn of the millennium. And I feel like this one definitely at least has the right approach of take the premise of the original movie, even like a lot of the structural story stuff, and do something very distinct with it. And I give credit to Cameron Crowe for doing that, especially I like the idea 
that in the original movie, it's just sort of like, oh, you can create your own version of like what this world is when you're like cryogenically frozen as the twist later reveals. And for like in the case of the original movie, it's much more just like, oh, an ideal kind of happy environment that you can live in versus Cameron Crowe was going for in particular, like an American kind of pulling from different bits of pop culture and making his ultimate vision of what he wants the world to be, which is much more pronounced and I think has a lot of interesting sort of potential ideas to it. But at the same time, I think ultimately becomes off less of like, hey, I'm doing this pastiche that has like a lot of like commentary about how we obsess with pop culture and more of Cameron Crowe saying like, all right, I own this album and I like this particular movie and I do this particular bit. It feels like an even more overt like uh, Tarantino kind of call out thing to only the stuff like most people would actually know. I get that. But also at the time, this wasn't billed as a remake. Right. This was not like based on the, well, which all the other ones were at the time. They, I didn't know this was a remake when I first saw it. I don't think a lot of people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't like. I didn't even know right. there was a remake of Open Your Eyes. To be fair, right? Exactly. So I, going into it, I just thought this was a completely original piece of cinema. And I, you know, had I known it was a remake, I might have a different opinion on it now. But I went into it not knowing that. Wow, at the time when. You know, you got to figure early 2000s cinema was kind of stale. It was all remakes. It was all blockbusters. It was you didn't get a lot of, you know, mainstream sort of experimental type movies. And for this one to come out, it was like, wow, this is something different right now. Like, this is Mm -hmm. really kind of crazy. Like I said, had I known then it was a remake, I, I, I can honestly I can guarantee you I probably wouldn't be so beholden to it as I am now. Um, I would have probably sought the the original first to give them credit. I think that was the smart play to not build as a remake, to build as something not necessarily original, but to just not even mention that it was based on something else. Right. And I think it in their, well, it did not work in their favor. This movie well, did not do well. Well, actually, no, that's not the case in a weird way where like, it's a movie that's had a negative cultural impact, but on a $68 million budget, it made $203 million. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it did pretty good. Yeah, mostly on the strength of Tom Cruise. Yeah, Tom Cruise can sell out. Especially at that particular time, very much so. And, like, literally, the poster is just his fucking face in front of, like, the sky. Yep. It's just like, here's me. Is, is Tom Cruise the biggest sort of classic movie star of our generation? I, I kind of think he might be. Um, I would say more... At least he belongs in the top of conversation. If you're having the conversation, he belongs in that conversation i would say more will smith i think because will smith at least doesn't have as much of like the weird home life stuff that cruise had and i think kind of dissipated his career after a certain point that's true but tom cruise's movies still make a shitload of money his mission Impossible movies do not the other ones (laughs) i would i would say uh, to be fair i think ironically enough him or brad pitt i was gonna say brad pitt as well pitt also has that yeah uh but i i caitlin to go a bit more how do you feel sort of like crow's take on the original movie didn't quite work for you i also really didn't like that sophia did kind of had that like quirky thing to her in this it just kind of became like one of my kind of least favorite tropes where it's the manic pixie dream girl mm-hmm. kind of thing and i really dislike that trope which cameron crow would like basically make the movie that coined that phrase right after this was elizabeth town yeah uh, but again i don't mean to keep i'm not trying to argue with anybody oh no go ahead I, 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 I like hearing your opinion. Well, hey, aw. But no, I, uh, I, I think she became that quirky pixie dream girl within the dream. 
I think she started off, she was a little bit, you know, different, a little odd because, you know, she could barely speak English and she's an artist and everything. But within his dream, she became sort of the, the little bit more quirky, elusive sort of fantasy. I would say she was out that outside of the dream being the fact that she's this quirky artist girl who is the only one that has made David feel. Right. I don't disagree with that. She's the only one who made David feel. I think that ultimately she became the fantasy. Oh, oh no, she definitely became the fantasy in the dream. I, 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 you know, the fact of the matter is he, he wanted to have a one night stand with her and she denied him. And I think that's what sort of was like, oh, he's never been denied before. Yeah. Yeah, as, as established with him fucking rocking out to Salisbury Hill, which I think is another thing. I think all the music choices are really obnoxious in terms of licensed songs. I agree. I think Sugar Rose and some of those... Li- I think the licensed songs are really bad. I agree. Yeah, yeah like, like the licensed songs are bad, but like the actual score... The, the Radiohead radio and Sugar Rose are, think, are fantastic. Right, but yeah, the yeah. Licensed, the licensed jams, yeah, I, I agree. I think I wish they had kind of kept the alternate ending a bit more. Right, which is a lot more faithful to uh, open your eyes uh, with a lot more yeah. of Kurt Russell. I think, honestly, they cut Kurt Russell's best bit in the movie, because I think whenever we cut yeah. to the Kurt Russell character, I know they they spell out very clearly with Noah Taylor. They're like, oh, you tried to imitate, um, you know, Atticus Finch with a Kurt Russell, who I think Kurt Russell was able to pull that off um, mm-hmm. in most circumstances. I don't get Atticus Finch as much from him, really, in this movie. Yeah. I don't at all. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't either. I gotta be honest, I don't get Atticus Finch either. I get maybe parts of it, and, and honestly, as shallow as it is, I think it's just the fucking glasses. Yeah, it's pretty much the glasses. Yeah, it's just like, look, he's got the glasses. He's he's back at Agus Finch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. But I'm real. God damn it, David, I'm real. I love that whole scene. And then he's like, understands, like, holy shit, I'm just a construct of this dude's imagination. Again, this is somebody who champions this film. But to me, that was incredibly like, oh, this is kind of powerful. Like, this construct of this guy's mind is realizing, oh, that's what I am. There's so many levels to that. When I first saw this, like, uh, the last year, I didn't know anything about Open Your Eyes, and I didn't know, like, the sort of plot twist that happened. I vaguely knew it's a mindfuck movie, but that's all I kind of yeah. knew. But even then, like, watching it just feels like, oh, is all of this supposed to be just fake and plasticky? Because I get why that's initially, because he plays, like, a, this... Tom Cruise plays, like, a magazine mogul, um, which this is the last time I think you could do that before that felt like a really outdated over-the-top, like, rich profession <laughs> that you could do. It's so much about, like, oh, there's so much artifice to his character, but Penelope Cruz kind of lays that off a bit. I agree with Caitlin. I think there's no real point where I get a true sense of his character beyond, like, when he's all fucked up. But it's like, but yeah. I don't really get what I lost. I get that more in the original movie, what I kind of lost about this character, who's rich and well-off, but at the same time, like, in a way that feels more believable as, like, a spoiled brat kind of thing, as opposed to, <laughs> the rich trendsetter, oh, the seven dwarves, gotta deal with these fuckers, I can't believe it, oh, look at my bucket hat, which, by the way, the worst fucking hat I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. No, it, it, that bucket hat is fucking ridiculous. You can tell that Tom uh, Cruise uh, just picked that bunch of hats, just like, that looks great, I'm going yeah, with that like, bucket this hat. this is good, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. I agree. To me, he's an egotistical prick um, who's never had to earn anything in his life. And once everything comes crumbling down, and obviously with what happens to him at the club where he completely self-destructs. And then yeah. this fantasy life that comes up all starts going well in the beginning. 
but then he doesn't know how to be this person because he's never had to be this person before. So his lucid dream becomes a nightmare because he doesn't know how to relate. He doesn't know how to react. He doesn't know how to belong in a normal day life. He doesn't know how to let people in. He doesn't know how to be a normal person. He doesn't know how to actually love someone. I mean, he's in love with someone he met one time. I will say, I think it also could, like, I also interpret it as the fact that lucid dreaming is kind of just like dreaming, dreaming, where sometimes you don't fully have control over what you're seeing. Right. Which is why the blending, I think, happened that changed the movie. No, right. I think the original movie does an interesting job with that, where it feels like, with, like, dreaming, there's this whole thing where it's like, oh, you're in an environment you're aware of. And then just something feels off, something feels weird, something kind of ticks you to what's going on. I think that original movie does a pretty good job of, like, it's it's a much more sort of, like, basic outline of this premise, but at the same time, I think accomplishes it better, because I get a better sense of the reality, anyway, yeah. um, as opposed to, like, going from, like, uh, the, the genre mend- blending that Adam mentioned. I feel it being just more performative, like, we're going from Jerry Maguire romantic comedy to like a sort of uh, thriller angle to a sci-fi angle and i feel like there's no real reality that i can kind of like attach to to make sort of like the big pop culture flourishes kind of feel like oh we are entering some kind of different realm it all feels kind of like fake and plasticky to me yeah well fuck you um no i uh... <laughs> no i can't just dis- i can't disagree with you at all but i still think the transition into those sort of different realities and different genres are pretty well done in this like to me it all feels sort of uh symbiotic and if natural progression throughout the story of the story that they're trying to tell and i think the idea of the pop culture explosion that happens near the end of the movie with you know the album covers and the paintings and the movies and all that stuff is the way to tell it for american audiences because american audiences are so reliant on pop culture for a lot of their knowledge and a lot of their sort of memories, you know, uh, intrinsically, most of our memories are tied to a certain movie we saw or a certain album we heard or anything like that. That's just tied to our like certain sense. Yeah. That's sort of all that kind of stuff. That's sort of the culture we've propagated and, and have become. And I think the really smart play in this movie is showing that that's necessarily might be all you are is pop culture references. You don't have an identity of your own. You only uh, can relate to these pop culture things and achievements of others. You never achieved anything on your own. You can only relate it to other people's achievements. I do really like how you see it. And I'm glad it means that to you. And it's a very interesting, uh, different view. Right, yeah. I mean, like, it's. Uh, I totally get what you're talking about here. Clearly, that doesn't describe our lives. And on that note, my wife! It's <laughs> just a bunch of pop culture references. That's all we do on the show. At all. <laughs> hey, Literally, we started it. it. My pop wife. wife. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's um, a me. I've seen other movies kind of take that kind of idea and do interesting things with it. But I do agree that I think it's. it feels like it's kind of breaking a bit of ground in trying to do something with it. Um, I don't know if it accomplishes it well, but I, I at least appreciate the ambition that's going on here. Yeah, I do. Well, I do admire the ambition. It's better than the ham fisted versions we get later with pop culture references, mm-hmm. uh, i.e. ready player one or things oh, like dude, that, where it's like, it's so ingrained in the storytelling where you're like, okay, then 
I'll just watch the original material or listen to the original things. At least this one tries to show like diversity in it. Where it's I will not give it that. So I will give it that. Right, and I think like the probably the best encapsulation of that in this movie is the opening kind of dream within a dream sequence in which Tom Cruise goes down like uh, various points of Manhattan and even down to Times Square and nobody's there. Like I, I love the audacity of a shot like that. This is even oh, pre like twenty eight days later doing that with London. <laughs> So it feels just like, oh, wow, I can't believe you were able to do this. And it feels definitely like Cameron Crowe took sort of his blank check to be able to do, like, hey, I'm going to, after all the success, I'm going to make this weird kind of intrinsic movie that he's never tried to do after this. This movie kind of broke his career. Because after this, it's like Elizabeth Town and We Bought a Zoo <laughs> and other bullshit like that. This is not the first one we've talked about where, where guys do that. They get sort of their blank check to make these movies they want to make, and they pick these bizarre things. I mean, our Sean Connery episode. You know, he made Deliverance, got a blank check, and he made fucking Zardoz. Right. It, it, it gives these guys carte blanche. It's sort of like, I want to make a movie that I want to make that I would be entertained by, and I hope other people are too. And yeah. honestly, it's a 50-50 shot. It's a crapshoot. I, I think definitely with Vanilla Sky, it's, it's definitely a thing of like, what I heard prior to even seeing this movie was a lot more of a thing Adam was kind of hinting at, like huge hatred for. Like, I think... The first time I even heard about this movie was like a Family Guy joke where it's like, oh, hey, let's pick a bad movie. How about Vanilla Sky? Oh, I wanted a bad movie, not an abortion. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah, Family Guy. Great. I didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah. I literally think I didn't get a job because of this film. Everyone. The hatred for this movie was so, I'm not even kidding. The hatred for this movie was so vitriol at the time. One thing I can give this movie credit for, well, obviously I've given the movie credit for a lot of things, but sure. to step outside of it and not be the like sort of fangirl that I am about it is this movie. When it came out, it got people talking. It, it, it got attention, be it good or bad. I mean, this was a hugely divisive film. Yeah. Cause uh, why I would bring up discussions and that's something I think it ranges all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. If you look on Letterboxd, it's very polarizing. In it's a love it or hate it sort of movie. It yeah. is. Uh, and that's something, honestly, I think we need movies like those. Because, like, a lot of my favorite movies are kind of those films where it's either love it to death or hate it to death. Uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I think at the end of the day, movies like this or the love it or hate it sort of ideas are are always good in a way that they sort of jumpstart cinema in one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, so where you're going to get more movies like this, or you're going to get movies that completely shy away and try something different than this. I mean, right down to Tom Cruise, like I mentioned, it can be a fulcrum movie. I feel like this is kind of the start of sort of a Tom Cruise backlash in terms of his career. Because after yes. this, you would have like a being like a Minority Report that would be popular, but even like so a Last Samurai or leading into like the uh, infamous 2005 year where you had like War of the Worlds and the Oprah incident felt kind of like the culmination of all that. And then that kind of transitioned into, like, his later career and what he's been doing here. It's, like, such a weird, important thing for even just that star's, like, track record. And how much, like, he's really trying to, like, portray so much, like, of this loss and also comment on his own history, it feels like. And even kind of, um, you know, dealing with a lot of emotions, considering, like, he got divorced from Nicole Kidman midway through this movie's shooting. Right. Yeah. Oh shit! I didn't realize that. Yeah. 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 I think honestly, Thomas, and I, I agree with you. I think, but I, I think this is one of the first examples of the, obviously the cruisessence, if you want to call it that, where he's actually trying to be an actor. 
where he's he's really going for it and he's trying to show and he's trying to show that he can do all these different things. He's still on the Magnolia high after this movie. Yeah. 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 Right. I agree. Um, but uh, we've talked a lot about Vanilla Sky, so let's get into our final thoughts here over on Vanilla Sky. Caitlin, your final thoughts. My final thought is, while this movie has a lot of ambition, a great score, and even some interesting acting choices, this one personally just isn't for me, but I can see where Adam's coming from and why he loves the film and why it's important to have films like this. And um, I'll let Adam have the final say. I'll just uh, briefly have my final thoughts here. Just to say that I kind of agree with Caitlin. I I don't, I, in terms of the love it or hate it, like a lot of those movies, I feel very just down the middle about it in general. Where it's just like, there's some choices where I'm like, what the hell are you doing? What is even going on here? But then, like, even half the other choices have a similar effect, but in a more curious tone. Of just like, what the hell is this? What are we going for here? This is interesting. It's It's pulling at both ends for me, but I think in a way that's, endlessly fascinating it's it feels like a movie despite being very close to the original movie it does not feel like many other sort of especially big hollywood movies of its ilk around this time it's very unique on that regard and i think that's why i would take the classify as a bad movie but an interesting one for sure for a lot of the reasons that we said but adam final word your thoughts on vanilla sky just to get it out quickly like i said this is a very important film to me to inform sort of my tastes going forward or in films, not necessarily my taste, but uh, how open I'd be to giving other films a view or trying different genres or, or weirder movies. The, I would have not have seen Videodrone if it wasn't for Vanilla Sky. I mean, that that is an absolute truth. Um, same with Donnie Darko, same with The Fountain, same with a lot of these movies. It's not for everyone in any way, shape, or form. And I understand that the original has its fans and might actually be a better film. Um, had I seen the original first, I'd probably be right on that wavelength. But I think there is a lot of fucking really cool sort of ideas in this movie. A lot of chances are being took. A lot of sort of crazy ideas are being played with. It, it To me, this is a sandbox of a film. It, it's a bunch of people in a sandbox making things. And this is what we got. This is what we're doing. Let's try it. Hey, I like that. Let's put it on the screen. And I, I think that's what this movie is. And I think it is absolutely fascinating on that level alone. Love it or hate it. It's a fascinating movie. Yeah. I think just to really crystallize it, um, we went this long talking about it and we didn't really mention much of the psychological thriller elements of the movie in general. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> we really didn't. Well, we said it's a mindfuck. We said it's a mindfuck and it right. is a mindfuck. Right. That's true. But like just more specifically the stuff where it's like, oh, it's Cameron Diaz, Penelope Cruz, all that other stuff. We didn't really talk about that that much. Uh, but yeah, yeah. It, it has that. It has that in there. There's a lot. That's the thing. Yeah. There's a lot of psychological stuff in it, but you know, it's hard to pigeonhole it into one genre. There's so many genres in it. Yes, indeed. But that is the end of our discussion of our two movies for now. Um, and we have some uh, feedback to read because every single Monday at DEDB pod on Twitter and Facebook, we ask all y'all, Hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? So uh, we have some feedback here. First off from uh, a few friends of the show. First, James Rodriguez says, uh, best in terms of psychological thrillers, Karen Kusama's The Invitation, Black Swan, Memento, Gone Girl, Worst, The Girl on the Train, or Straw Dogs, either version. Um, Christian Alvarez says, uh, my favorite examples would probably be uh, Vertigo, 
Jacob's Ladder, Cape Fear, either version, and American Psycho. Uh, my worst examples would be uh, 2019's Joker, the last few seasons of Dexter, and The Good Son, despite being a guilty pleasure of mine. And uh, Ryan Quarterman, our previous guest on the show, says Swim Fan and Mother, which were alternate choices. Of course you would say Swim uh, Fan. Uh, <laughs> of course. No, I like Straw Dogs, the original. I think the remake is garbage, but I like the original because I like Beck and Paul. It's visceral. It, it does not hold a place in today's society, but I still think it's definite gut punch of a film. Joker, I don't hate as much as maybe my co-host does, and I don't know about you, Caitlin. I think it's a. I think it's fine. I don't think it's phenomenal by any means, but I think it's fine. Joker had some good acting, but yeah, that's probably where I'm at with it too. I mean, it's a Scorsese ripoff for sure, but uh, I, you know, Joaquin Phoenix was pretty damn good as Joker. Oh, I'll agree there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I will say Black Swan is an excellent pick. Mm-hmm. I adore I, that movie. I think Black Swan is uh, my vanilla sky for you guys. Where I'm like, yeah, it's all right. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I got to agree with most of those. Like, I, I can't hate on a lot of those except for maybe Swim Fan. Yeah, Swim <laughs> I, kn- I knew that son of a gun would pick Swim. You didn't even have to read the name. I would have known it was him. True, right. Um, but I think even some of the bad choices that were picked, I do. Like, Girl on a Train is, like, oh, terrible. garbagey. Terrible movie. Oh, so it's awful. It's dumb. That's a cookie-cutter psychological thriller. Yeah. Which is funny, considering the book. Well, it's weird, because it came out sort of in the wake of another movie mentioned, Gone Girl, which I love. Mm-hmm. And I think is another example of doing... A psychological thriller, but also kind of playing on a lot of the themes of both of our movies in terms of like pop culture stuff and even how we kind of look at women at the same yeah. time. Um, it, it plays on a lot of that. And Girl on a Train feels like, okay, this is Gone Girl, but if you were too like mind blown by all the b- deep psychological yeah. themes of Gone Girl, it's all stripped yeah. down with Girl on a Train. Yeah. <laughs> and it's I really, agree. yeah, especially it has like one of my favorite instances of bad acting with Emily Blunt, who I normally like. There's a whole scene where she talks to a baby while she's drunk and she's like oh hello little baby how are you it's like oh emily (laughs) yo yo what about the snowman yeah uh that one it's it feels kind of a bit more like mystery crime thriller but it's terrible it's like oh it's bad it's an incomplete movie like it literally they didn't shoot most of the script that's funny because there's a couple i was gonna say but yeah i think you're right there in the the crime sort of thriller genre of uh thriller so i guess i'll save them well caitlin what about you what are some ones that weren't mentioned here that you would spotlight uh for psychological thrillers get out's a really good one a tale of two sisters probably one of my favorite psychological thrillers of all time though it does have some horror aspects (laughs) silence of the lambs Honestly, there's just so many to love at this point. I'd say Shining's also a really good one, too. Mm-hmm. That you can count as a psychological thriller. I like The Lighthouse a lot. Oh, I yeah. have not seen that one yet. I keep meaning that to is, watch That is absolutely a psychological thriller. Agreed, yes. I like It Comes at Night. I know a lot of people don't. I like The Gift quite a bit, too. The Gift is very underrated. That one kind of came and went, but was like, yeah. it's, it's really It's phenomenal. really good, though. Yeah. Oh, Rear Window is another one that's a really good psychological oh, thriller. Oh, so of course, the, the window with Hitchcock. Yeah, we could go down a lot of rabbit holes. Oh, Rear Window, Vertigo. I mean, yep. there's so many good ones. Um, Ten Cloverfield Lane. 
Yes, I would mm. agree with that. If anything, the movie becomes lesser when like it gets into more sci-fi elements at the very end. At the end. Yeah, I agree. Right. But up until then, it's a fucking nail-biter. Oh, John Goodman. Such a fun... Maybe yeah. his best, like, terrifying performance. Oh, I, without question. Yeah. Without question. Such a good turn. He's okay. that guy in Walter Sobchak. Those are his best performances. Right, and in terms of the more comedic stuff, yes. And even that has some thrillery elements to it, like when he's beating up the car and shit. I'd <laughs> also say Parasite. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Parasite, I'd definitely count that one as a psychological thriller. Well, well even uh, Bong Joon-ho has done that before. For sure. Oh, he yeah, has, like, Bong Joon-ho is kind of like the master of it. Even uh, Bong Joon-ho's uh, monster movie, uh, host. The Host, while it's a monster movie, it also is a psychological thriller, considering how it examines the minds of the family and stuff. Like, he's a king of psychological thrillers. You know, another one that I would spotlight that has sort of, like, some kind of gothic elements to it, but I think really works, I think has a phenomenal turn from the lead actress, Personal Shopper. Oh, that's really good. The Kristen Stewart movie. That movie has genuinely one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen involving texting. Like, so many movies don't know how to use texting, but there's a whole sequence where she's getting texts on a phone from someone who she thinks is probably dead. And it's, like, one of the most tense scenes I've ever seen in that movie. It's just like, oh my fucking god, what's happening? <laughs> what's going on? That's a that's a really good one. Yeah. Um, there are so many is... amazing psychological thriller movies. Misery? Misery, yeah, yep. For sure. Um, Locke? With Tom Hardy. Yeah, that's not one you would think of, usually. But yeah, it's it's just him and, like, phone conversations with famous people, basically. Yep. Like, everyone is voices in that movie. But it's really good. Yes, I would agree. You know, and then uh, the last one I would say is probably uh, American Psycho. Mm. Yes. Oh, what about Gerald's Game? That one would be a psychological That's really thriller. good. Yeah, yeah, I would concur with that as well, yes. So you see, there's a lots of fun ones that you can watch. Fun family entertainment for everybody. I don't know all any of those fun <laughs> family entertainment. I, okay, I would call them fun, but I would not call them family entertainment. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Show your kids Gone Girl; they'll love it. Uh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> In fact, have like a David Fincher a thon with your kids; they'll love it. Oh, oh my god! Great. I'm Great. so sorry, kids. I'm so sorry. <laughs> On that note, now, I am not a official child rearer, so I do not take any responsibility for you doing stupid shit. Said you said it? Zodiac. Yes. <gasps> Zodiac, Of course, yep. Zodiac, yeah. That that also kind of goes into crime, but there's still so much psychology, especially. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, for sure. That, that's the thing. Psychological thrillers overlap with so many different genres. It's, it's gonna happen. Especially yeah. in crime. Crime and horror is usually what they overlap with. Or even like a general, like even the, um, the Coen brothers do that a lot with stuff like um, No Country for Old Men has a lot of that. Or even right from their first big outing with Blood Simple, which is one not a lot of people yes. like talk about, but it's like such it's a so great, good. like engrossing thriller as well. Yeah. Um, so is Blood's Crossing. So is, I mean, right. there's a, yeah, for sure. There's a lot, yes. Uh, but thank you for all that feedback and your suggestions. We also want to thank some other people. Like, thanks to Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. Thanks to all you loyal Patreon supporters over at patreon.com slash gedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you all can uh, vote on certain things we do, like a topic we cover for an episode or an individual movie we cover as a good or bad choice. And uh, right now, you can even vote for a new topic we'll be doing in December where, you know, 2020 has been a rough year and we've done a lot of like sort of heavier subjects. Uh, we want to do something really stupid and silly. So we decided to uh, do animal movies, and you guys get to choose which animal we focus on. 
two movies that feature predominantly either dogs or monkeys. Ooh, very hard choice. Yes, now, I, Caitlin, I know you're a big doggo fan. Yes, I am. I, I like my bias would definitely go towards the dogs. Oh, if I was going to choose a good one, I'd probably go with a classic like 101 Dalmatians. If we're going monkey, I'm going Ed with Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> For all you Ed heads out there. Yeah. If we were going, if we're doing monkey, it's gotta be Dunstan checks in. Suffer. You know that, that could go, but that depends on all you patrons. Edge lords, edge lords. Yes, Edgelords, if you're a donate the $1, you're called an Edgelord over on the Patreon. And you all get to vote between dogs and monkeys. That'll be this week. That poll will be out. And uh, along with you guys, we also want to thank, of course, Caitlin for coming back to the show. Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And Caitlin, do you have anything to plug? Right now, I'm doing a D&D kind of show thing with a bunch of my friends, one being Sam Bertuxton, who's a guest here sometimes. What's the D&D thing called? Where can you find it? Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's 0% value D&D. It's a lot of fun. Uh, Sam plays one of the most unique characters I have ever seen. <laughs> this man literally created a character out of clay. Well, of course, we, we all want some more Sam Protects in our lives, as we might get in the future. Wink! Wink, wink! <laughs> but, but... Speaking of thanking people, uh, this episode is coming out the week of Thanksgiving in the U.S. We want to wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving, and we also encourage you to celebrate it safely, considering Yes, please ce celebrate safely and hopefully at a distance. At a distance, for sure, yes, please. But happy Thanksgiving, everybody. As happy as you can have one. Happy Thanksgiving. Absolutely. I hope this is nearing the end of all this trauma and horrible shit that's going on, but, uh, you know... Stay safe, stay with your loved ones, and your home. Social distance, wear a goddamn mask if you go out. And, uh, you know, it's gonna get better, I promise. Yes, and uh, you know what? You can find us at DEDBpod, as I mentioned on Twitter and Facebook, where we share certain things like episodes and just random musings and fun things. Um, and also, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. You can submit feedback that way um, through email along with doing the Facebook and Twitter posts we do on Mondays for your feedback. And uh, you can find me individually on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at NotTheWho'sTommy. And I also do some writing at uh, MarianiThomas.wordpress.com. Yes, and I am on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore or underscore A-D-A-M. Uh, I, you know, don't do much. I share a lot of the paintings I've been doing recently and things like that. Uh, but Arnett, if you want to find me, that's where I am. If not, that's fine too. I don't want to be found. No, you don't go searching for him. Uh, but you can search for our content over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms out there. And if you're listening on the ESO network, uh, why not listen to the other great shows, like the one we played a little promo for in the middle. And uh, you can also dig into our archives on Podbean. Uh, that's where our main feed is, including stuff we haven't put on the ESO network since uh, we did a solid 60 or so episodes before we did that. And if nothing else, if you can't join the Patreon, if you can't uh, you know, follow us on the socials. If you could just rate, review, or share the show around, it helps us out, gives us more visibility, gets people closer to us, makes this part of the pop culture people want to make into their weird sphere lucid dream. Yeah. You better fucking like it. <laughs> of course, of course. But, before we leave, Adam, we have to do our picking for next week. 
because uh, each of us has two movies of different quality. I have two good movies, you have two bad movies related to next week's topic, and that topic is coming-of-age films, which we've kind of had on the docket for a while, and uh, we're excited to do. Mm, I'm excited, in a way. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, there could be some really shitty calls on this, and I have the bad ones, but still, oh boy. Of course, of course. But um, you have assigned the number between 1 and 10 for both your choices. I've done the same for mine. And normally we'd pick each other's choices and get the good and bad feature. But uh, when we have a lovely guest like Caitlin, they get to do this. So uh, for my two good choices, Caitlin, number between 1 and 10. 7. All right. At number 8, I had a movie that I don't think gets a lot of credit, but it's from a director who's blown up, especially uh, in recent years. It is Taika Waititi's Hunt for the Wilder People. Hmm. Good choice. Cool. I'm excited to talk about that. What was your fucking other one? At number two, I had um, another one from a director who's become especially acclaimed. I think this was kind of his breakout movie. I had Wes Anderson's Rushmore. Wow. I, I'm actually okay with both of those choices. Good for you, Thomas. And Caitlin, give yourself a hat to the back. <laughs> and now we decide your hell. Oh, yes. Yeah. For his two bad choices, Caitlin, number between one and ten. Four. Okay, at number two, I have uh, the Stephen Dorff, Norman Reedus, Brad Renfro, Feruza Bulk, starring Deuces Wild. The fuck? Yeah. I, d- I don't know what this is. <laughs> Grace, There's a reason you don't want to know what this is. Yeah, well, no, I'm going to no, find no. out. <laughs> It's not good. What no Walmart one dollar bin did you fucking pull this out? <laughs> oh man, I saw that movie at the theater, Doc. Oh, that one dollar <laughs> bin got it. Put, oh. Just to put your mind at ease, Tom, this has a three percent approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh goody! Oh uh, yeah. What was your other choice? <laughs> Number ten, I had New Mutants. Oh. oh. Okay, I have not seen New Mutants. It's bad. Oh, shit, what? Crazy. Deuces Wild and Hunt for the Wilder People. That's an interesting yeah. feature. For sure. Um, but uh, we're going to go ahead and sign off, everybody. Until next time, open your eyes. I will see you in another life when we are all cats. Oh, like the movie Cats? Yeah, but I, I don't want them to take out my butthole. Out of my... <laughs> McCavity! <laughs> Good night, everybody. Wasn't there. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.